I'd like to welcome Dr. Uh, Vercelli's today. Uh, Dr. Vercelli's is assistant professor of um, uh, medicine here in the pulmonary, uh, pulmonary critical care division. Uh, he is in charge of the rapid wean unit over at Midtown as well and is actively involved in uh, the rehabilitation of, uh, of the patients that we provide to him and in um, rehabilitation that occurs um, in the direction of it in the medical ICU. And uh, he's going to be talking to us about uh, uh, continuing care for survivors of critical illness. All right, thanks, Mike, for the introduction. Uh, and I want to thank you also for inviting me to talk today about uh, a very unique patient population. And I'm sure it's a population that all of you have had experience with. And they pose very, um, they pose a lot of management quandaries and issues. And so hopefully, I'll be able to enlighten you with respect to uh, taking care of these patients going forward. So in, in uh, creating this talk, uh, I had a couple conversations with Mike, and we thought it may be, this was an appropriate title, but what might be even more appropriate would be, you've saved them from critical illness, now what do you do? So in talking about this population today, I'm going to give you a brief, brief background, some demographics, some clinical characteristics and some uh, implica financial implications of this uh, population. I'm going to talk to you briefly about some ventilator liberation strategies, uh, what are the uh, proven methods of getting these patients off the ventilator. I'm going to talk about optimizing nutritional supplementation for them, because as we all know, if you, can't, if you don't eat properly, you're not going to do uh, as best as you can clinically. And then I'm going to talk about uh, physical rehab strategies, what's out there with respect to uh, treating them and managing them from a rehab standpoint. Um, I just want to apologize for my voice. I woke up with this this morning, and I don't know how long I'm going to last. Um, and I also want to say, with respect to this population, there's not much out there with respect to data. Okay, so a lot of this is going to be um, ICU-based data extrapolated into this population. So when you talk about the five million plus uh, patients who are admitted to ICUs for critical illness, approximately 90% of them recover quickly or go uh, or die, and that's within two to four days. The other 10% go through a long, protracted ICU stay. Um, almost 100% of them are mechanically ventilated. Uh, they, they all require tracheostomy at some point in time. Um, they become frail and deconditioned. Mu many of them lose muscle mass. And they have ongoing medical needs with respect to um, different comorbidities or different acute illnesses that may, that may develop over the course of their stay. Um, this high-level need of this high-level nursing need often requires them admission to uh, some post-acute venue, whether it be a uh, long-term acute care facility, an acute rehab facility, or, um, or a skilled nursing facility. So looking at these patients longitudinally, as I said, some percentage, approximately 40% of, uh, of them are admitted to ICUs mechanically ventilated, um, and they, they stay mechanically ventilated for two to four days. At day seven, usually 20% remain uh, requiring the vent, but it's usually not until day 21 where they, where they actually declare themselves as someone who is chronically critically ill. Um, at that point, they usually have a tracheostomy. They're usually very debilitated and malnourished. And per studies, usually at day 25, these patients are transferred to, their, to what seems to be their, uh, their endpoint uh, terminal destination, which I had mentioned, the long-term care facilities, nursing homes, or long-term acute care facilities. 
So what lands these patients in the ICU in the first place? So this was a large cohort study uh, performed by Dr. Scheinhorn out in California, and he actually noted that over 60% of these patients carry a medical diagnosis that land them in the ICU. Uh, most of the time it was pneumonia, followed by general sepsis or COPD exacerbations. The remaining 39% often were victims of uh, surgical mishap or cabbage gone bad, GI surgeries, or heart valvular surgeries. Now this conceptual model very well demonstrates that these patients usually have many chronic comorbidities. They're of older age. And usually, as mentioned, it's an acute medical, surgical, neurologic, or cardiac catastrophe that lands them in the ICU. Then it's usually repeated bouts of sepsis or um, recurring acute comor um, exacerbations of acute comorbidities perpetuate their ICU stay. And over time, they develop, again, what's called chronic critical illness, which characterized by ventilator dependence, brain dysfunction um, in the form of delirium um, or PTSD. Uh, they often get neuromuscular weakness in the form of ICU-acquired weakness. They have endocrinopathies, such as uh, uh, steroid-induced diabetes or thyroid disorders. They often get malnourished uh, and suffer anasarca as a result. And they often have skin breakdown, decubitus ulcers, um, as, a, as a, forming this constellation of acute chronic uh, critical illness. So looking at the population, most of them are over the age of 65. It's approximately half, if you look here, over the age of 65. And when you include those aged 50 to 64, that actually um, in includes over 75% of the patients. So again, this patient population is older, um, and with the aging of the baby boomers, you can only expect this, to, this population to grow. So as I mentioned, this population is approximately 10% of all ICU admissions, but they consume a disproportionate amount of resources, upwards of 40% of ICU re resources. And this is during their acute hospitalization, not their chronic stay. This accounts to over $20 billion for only 500,000 patients. And as mentioned, this is only going to get, get um, this, this population is only going to grow and cost more in the future. Another view on costs, if you look at age 65 to 74 and upwards, uh, they, this, this population in, in, incurs about half of the um, costs um, of this, this group includes half of the cost of this population. Again, when you include the, those age 50 to 64, um, the cost in, increases to about two-thirds of this population. So again, aging population, costing a lot of money, and if you see here, their stays in the acute care facility are upwards of 30 days. So definitely problems we have to deal with. So what happens to them? Again, from the same cohort study we looked at before, um, over 1,400 patients, uh, we note that over 54% of them, about 54% of them actually wean and have decent outcomes, but 25% die and 21% at one year remain on the ventilator physically disabled and in chronic care facilities. So outcomes not that good. And just because they wean doesn't mean they necessarily go home too, as I'll show you later. So prolonged mechanical ventilation is defined by requiring the ventilator for over 21 days. Uh, and, and most of these patients 
um, meet that criteria. As I mentioned, most of them are tracheotomized, uh, need the ventilator for this long period of time, and because of that, it poses a huge problem in placement and, and getting them moved out the door. Um, the ventilator also pro causes problems, poses problems with respect to cognitive function. It, it actually promotes delirium. Um, these patients are, are often suffer PTSD and often feel like they're confined because of the ventilator. It increases length of stay, not just ICU length of stay, but hospital length of stay. Um, the ventilator has been a marker, shown to be a marker of mortality with respect to this population as well as the acute uh, ICU population. And then the whole constellation of, of these uh, outcomes re results in a, a lower quality of life, life, even for those people who do survive their ICU stay. Uh, this population experiences a lot of uh, nutritional deficiencies. Uh, of which kawashiorkor is very, is very common, protein calorie uh, malnutrition. Um, this is characterized by hypoalbuminemia as well as anasarca, and I'm going to go into the mechanism of that a little bit later. Um, and malnutrition in general, um, you should also always consider overfeeding as well as underfeeding. Most commonly we think of underfeeding as malnutrition, but we shouldn't overlook the, the, uh, the consequences of overfeeding. They suffer a musculoskeletal derangement. So, uh, the good majority of them suffer sarcopenia, which is loss of muscle mass, uh, as well as function. So not only muscle atrophy, but loss of strength and conditioning, uh, as well as functional, functional mobility. So the ability to walk, roll, stand up from a chair, uh, all basic uh, acti activities of daily living which we take for granted. Uh, in addition, because of the chronic bed rest, these patients often experience loss of bone density, uh, and due to joint disuse, they often have contractures that are uh, often debilitating and, and, and further prevent um, uh, functional mobility. There is the issue of critical illness neuromyopathy. Um, some people say neuro, uh, critical illness neuropathy, neuro, critical illness myopathy, but I throw them all together into the, into the same bag. Uh, they basically pre both prevent functional mobility, uh, which is a big issue with these patients. Um, it's seen in over 50% of patients that suffer from sepsis or multi-organ failure and require the vent. Um, and some studies have shown that over 90% uh, of these uh, patients are still, uh, still have persistent abnormalities at five years. Uh, certain risk factors for such are the, um, the development of SIRS, sepsis, multi-organ dysfunction. Uh, oftentimes, uh, this constellation of symptoms may be iatrogenic from us giving them uh, medications such as uh, paralytics, steroids, aminoglycosides, uh, antibiotics, uh, and hyperglycemia. It's shown that hyperglycemia to a severe degree can also cause uh, neuromuscular dysfunction. So physical function, of course, is impaired. Uh, that takes the uh, form of decreased strength most commonly. That just flipped. Um, but more importantly, uh, it affects quality of life in the form of uh, affecting ADLs. So, and these are the basic things that we take for granted. Uh, this population is very debilitated in that they have problems in simple things, bathing, dressing, toilet, toileting, even transfers. Oftentimes they can't feed themselves and are incontinent. Um, and up to 50% of these abnormalities and dysfunctions are seen. Um, in 50% of ICU survivors after the first year. So even if they get out of the hospital, they're still um, incurring these long-term uh, functional abnormalities. Uh, the ventilator has also been shown to be a, um, 
marker for having worse outcomes with respect to function. As you can see, these percentages, 86 and 69% are impaired at three, to 12, at three and 12 months. Uh, so um, greater impairment being on the vent. And 75% of these limitations are still severe and present at 12 months. So if you're on the vent, you have a, lo a, um, a higher chance of being impaired and being severely impaired at 12 months. So as mentioned, 100% of these patients are ve mechanically ventilated at one point in time. Um, one of the big tasks that we have going forward is getting them off the vent. So why does it matter that we get them off the vent? One of the big reasons is, is to avoid the adverse effects of the ventilator, which one main one of which is, is uh, ventilator-associated pneumonia. And this can occur in 40% of patients that are ventilated for more than seven days, uh, very common. Uh, in one study by Marin Koloff, it, it actually, can, uh, he said that it could occur in, there's an increasing chance of ventilator-associated pneumonia uh, by 1% uh, up to 30 days. So uh, again, a big problem, um, and it, uh, it incurs a lot of costs. Um, there are also iatrogenic events. Uh, by being on the ventilator, you're at greater risk for, being, uh, for having barotrauma, pneumothoraces, um, airway difficulties. And there are also psychological effects. As I mentioned, uh, higher chance of having PTSD, depression, feelings of confinement, and then the sheer cost. The sheer cost of being on the ventilator, two to, two to $3,000 a day in the acute ICU setting. So all reasons for us to, to, to better to wean them. <clears throat> so how do we wean them? So time and again, the best proven way to wean these patients, whether it be in the acute or the chronic care setting, is to use a therapist-driven protocol. And these protocols often use uh, the method of assessment, then intervention, and then reassess their, uh, the effects of their intervention. Oftentimes, uh, the rapid shallow breathing index is incorporated into the assessment, um, and the intervention often, often um, incorporates spontaneous breathing trials. So um, these, these uh, protocols also include getting the patient out of bed, which Im improves diaphragmatic excursion by utilizing gravity, uh, and then um, also aggressive pulmonary toileting for secretion management. Um, all of these things together in this population have demonstrated weaning rates in certain studies of 30 to 53%. Uh, so at the post-acute center at, down at Midtime, Midtown, we actually have one of these protocols that does incorporate all of these things, and we have a relatively high weaning rate, upwards of 50%. So this slide is not, shouldn't be new to you, you guys. It, it, it looks at the five things we should all be aware of when we're weaning people from the vent or assessing them to wean from the vent. Number one, is the acute illness or the reasons that they got on the vent resolved? Number two, are they hemodynamically stable? Three, are they awake, alert, oriented, their mental status appropriate? Number four, can they manage their own secretions and can they manage their own airway? And then the last thing, are they tolerating their SBT, spontaneous breathing trial? So how do we assess weaning readiness? Well, most of the time, I'm assuming your respiratory therapist will tell you if they're ready or not but it's, it's good to have your own knowledge of, of, of how to go forward with this. Uh, a lot of us uh, often turn to the rapid shallow breathing index, uh, which is the respiratory rate over the tidal volume uh, in, uh, in, in liters. Um, that gives you a number. That number is often used as a, a discriminator for weaning success or failure. How do you measure that? Well, technically, 
Um, in the original studies, they used a handheld spirometer and attached it to the patient's uh, T-piece, and they let them breathe spontaneously, counted the number of breaths, used a spirometer to calculate the, the uh, mean uh, tidal volume in, in a minute. Uh, nowadays, we have a, a ventilator that we can supposedly uh, keep them on, give them minimal support, and then get a calculated number either on the vent or um, in our heads. The, the rapid shallow breathing index, however, can be influenced by uh, different factors, uh, one of which is the ET tube. Smaller ET tubes have higher resistance, therefore you may get um, inaccurate numbers. Uh, in addition, gender, uh, as uh, males have been shown to have lower rapid shallow, shallow, uh, rapid shallow breathing indices. Um, body position can also affect the rapid shallow breathing index uh, if you perform it with the patient laying supine rather than semi-erect or sitting up in a chair. Uh, and then anxiety uh, as well. So these are non-physiological factors that affect uh, the rapid shallow breathing index um, or secretions. So as a discriminator, the original study by Yang and Tobin used 105 uh, as a marker for um, uh, above 105 um, being a, uh, uh, a predictor of failure to wean and below 105 to be a a, predict, a good predictor of, of, uh, of successful weaning and extubation. So looking at the sensitivity, specificity, positive and negative predictive value of uh, the rapid shallow breathing index of 105, when looking at the sensitivity or the number or the probability of patients um, that have weaned having a, a rapid shallow breathing index less than, uh, less than 105 being relatively high, uh, or, and the negative predictive value being the, the probability of a patient with a uh, rapid shallow breathing index above 105 uh, failing weaning, uh, this actually makes for a good, um, a good screening tool for uh, weaning and extubation. So one question many people may have is, how did you measure the rapid shallow breathing index? Say, so what means of, of support were they on? You know, were they on uh, T-piece breathing spot truly spontaneously, or were they getting ventilator support? So I summarized these studies to demonstrate to you that the if being on the ventilator, even minimal support uh, with PEEP, uh, does affect the rapid shallow breathing index. You see, uh, the two studies had measurements on T-piece, and then, and then uh, also repeated rapid shallow breathing indices on various levels of support. You see here pressure support of zero with PEEP of five. The um, rapid shallow breathing index went down to 71 from 90. Uh, again, uh, similar pressure support of zero and PEEP of five went down to 67 from 100. And then as you add pressure support, uh, you get a very favorable looking rapid shallow breathing index. So the, the ventilator support does affect this number to a degree. So when you get your rapid shallow breathing index, what does it mean? And as I mentioned, 105 has been the discriminator cutoff in the acutely ill population. But now, you know, to focus on the chronically critically ill, have there been good studies demonstrating a discriminator for this population? Unfortunately, there have not been, maybe one or two. So looking at, looking at these couple studies, uh, we see that 97 has demonstrated good tolerance of a, of a spontaneous breathing trial, but not necessarily successful weaning. Um, another study looked at 80 as demonstrating a, um, a tolerance of a, of a, a successful weaning, uh, but again, these studies are very small, um, and 
weaning was, is very ill-defined in these studies as, as being, um, uh, some, some studies define them as being wean, um, off the ventilator for 24 hours, some 72 hours, some a week. So it, this whole population is very vague and nebulous with respect to successful weaning. Are there other characteristics of the rapid shallow breathing index than taking just a pure number that may help you as to whether or not your patient is weaning successfully or would wean or be extubated successfully? So as you know, when you wean these patients acutely, it's an all or nothing, it's an all or nothing trial. You, you wean them, they look good, you pull the tube, they fly or they don't, okay? When you deal with the chronically critical Ill, critically Ill um, tracheotomized population, you can take them off the vent, they don't look good, you put them back on, on the vent, so it's, it's not necessarily an all or nothing th uh, thing with them. Um, keeping this in mind, maybe things like rapid shallow breathing index trend or, or other measures of such, um, patterns of such may be of some use. So we did a small study looking at this, uh, looking at the rapid shallow breathing index in uh, the chronically ill population. And what we found was that, yes, the, the isolated measurement at certain points in time were significantly different in the weaned and not weaned group, um, but also different were noted to be the RISB variability, uh, meaning uh, as, as per the coefficient of variation, which is a, a measurement of the, the variability of the, the, of the RISB against its mean. These were significantly different, as was the slope of the RISB. So the, so the rapid shallow breathing index over the course of weaning over time was uh, seen to be uh, lower than in the weaning group than it was in the non-weaning group. Or sorry, in, the, in those that weaned compared to those that did not wean successfully. And these were significant. So you know, following the RISB as a, as a pure number, in, uh, spot number, is helpful, but also helpful maybe following it over time. Many studies incorporate spontaneous breathing trials into, into weaning. Um, there's, all, there's a large debate as to how long you should, you should try them, you know, 30 minutes, 60 minutes, 120 minutes. Um, this study uh, here um, by Esteban looked at a short trial versus a long trial. Uh, and he found that um, those who passed a short trial um, were, compar uh, were comparable in number to those who passed a long trial, and those patients um, were successfully extubated 87 and 84% of the time. So tolerance of a 30-minute versus a 120-minute trial uh, resulted in the same number of extubations. Um, in addition, um, similar numbers were reintubated, 13.5 uh, and 13.4%, um, and similar numbers in mortality. So really, from this, you don't see much difference in using a long versus a short uh, uh, a spontaneous breathing trial. Well, should you use it at all then? Like, what's the use of having it? Um, study by Wes Ely demonstrated that when he took 300 patients, weaned them uh, using a screening procedure uh, and no spontaneous breathing trial compared to a, a group using a screening procedure and a spontaneous breathing trial, he found that the group with the SBT actually weaned faster, had a faster rate of weaning, and had a shorter number of vent days. Uh, the vent days in the intervention group was 3.5 and the control group was six. So using a spontaneous breathing trial in your weaning strategy actually um, results in better outcomes. How about weaning them in general? Is there a better way to wean them um, with respect to vent uh, mode? Uh, this is an older study, again a classic study by Esteban, that uh, looked at four, four different techniques of weaning. 
he looked at uh, intermittent mandatory ventilation, or IMV. He also looked at pre decremental pressure support, um, decreasing the pressure support by two to four um, centimeters of water over the course of a, a day. Um, and then he looked at using SBTs intermittently during the day and, and once, once daily. And so what Esteban found was that the group that used the SBTs had a higher rate of successful weaning, almost three times higher than the group that used IMV and two times higher than the group that used pressure, decremental pressure support. So incorporating uh, spontaneous breathing trials uh, as well as uh, intermittently and once daily results in quicker weaning from mechanical ventilation. Uh, as evidenced by here, you can see that the, mean, the median number of days from initiation of weaning in those that use the SBTs, three and three compared to pressure support, ventilation, and IMV. So lower, lower time on the vent when incorporating SBTs. So really, those, those, those studies that I just talked about were in the acutely ill population. There have been very few, if any, good studies demonstrating um, successful weaning efforts or strategies in the chronic population until this study, which came out fairly recently. Um, this is a study by Gibran, published in JAMA, which she, which she tested was a weaning strategy uh, incorporating uh, spontaneous trials of, of, uh, of uh, breathing uh, compared to pressure support trials. And these were extended trials upwards of uh, 11 or 12 hours. Uh, and so what she found was that those who were taken right off the vent and put on trach collar for extended trials of, of breathing weaned faster than those who used decremental pressure support. Um, this is the first study of its kind that, that demonstrated the extended, extended SBTs were most efficacious in weaning and weaning faster off the ventilator in this population. So nutrition, extremely important in, in treating these, pop, these patients. Um, and when I talk about nutrition, I'm not just talking about malnutrition in the sense of underfeeding, but overfeeding as well. Um, in, in, by definition, nutrition is when intake itself doesn't meet the, need, the caloric needs of a patient. Uh, again, in, it occurs as over and underfeeding, and is very prominent, upwards of 40% of patients with critical illness. Um, and as I'll show you, it's associated with poor outcomes. Again, this is not just overfeeding, but underfeeding. So again, when we think about malnutrition, we think about most of the time it's underfeeding the patient, providing not enough protein or providing not enough calories. Um, in actuality, um, malnutrition is a combination of the lack of um, providing enough calories um, and, the, and the inflammation affecting our um, nutritional homeostasis. So what occurs here normally, the liver makes these markers of metabolism, al albumin, transferrin, prealbumin, and when an acute insult, inflammatory insult occurs, um, you have these cytokines that result in the liver shifting its productive efforts towards making acute phase reactants, okay, as well as immunoglobulins. So, so this actually enhances the immune response. Um, in addition, the, the inflammation also results in skeletal muscle proteolysis, which provides nitrogenous and, pro and protein substrates for the liver to make um, these uh, acute phase reactants. So the combination of not enough calories and um, the result of nutritional homeostasis uh, and, and these mechanisms are actually what contribute to malnutrition. So the proteolysis and the cellular utilization of protein and the decreased synthesis of albumin is what actually results in the clinical picture that you, you typically see, which is the coesiorcore type 
uh, malnutrition, the hypo-oncotic state, the loss of lean tissue mass, and those patients that you typically see that look like the state puffed marshmallow man after you give them those 10, 12, 15 liters of fluid. You know, so that it's, it all, it's all a result of decreased nutrition, even in the acute phase, uh, and, and, and inflammation. Um, as mentioned, underfeeding um, does result in a milieu of, uh, of, uh, of uh, adverse events. Um, you have more infections, not just from gut translocation and bact uh, in, uh, of bacteria, um, but also uh, can result in decreased immune response, which results in increased infections. There's also, um, it also results in incre increased time requirement, requiring mechanical ventilation. That's due to, to uh, a heightened weakness um, from poor nutrition. Um, underfeeding result, resulted in, uh, in uh, increased ICU length of stay as well as uh, increased rates of mortality. And when talking about overfeeding, different macronutrients result in other adverse, adverse uh, effects here. As you see, increased carbohydrates may result in disruption of glycemic control as well as a non-alcoholic hepatic steatosis pitcher. Um, uh, it also results in prolonging ventilator liberation in the way that increased carbohydrate metabolism results in CO2 production. So that may actually cause a greater load with respect to uh, ventilator weaning. Increased lipids can result in cholestasis as well as uh, hypertriglyceridemia and may actually uh, theoretically exacerbate inflammation by creating um, more inflammatory eicosanoids. And then there's also the issue of protein. It's thought that giving high-protein meals may result in um, greater, number, greater azotemia, um, um, more hypoosmolar state, hyperosmolar state, um, hypernatremia and dehydration uh, due to the loss of free water through diuresis. And then there's the issue of refeeding. So when you have someone who's chronically starved, say, for weeks, um, they develop a re a uh, state that with a lower production of insulin. Uh, this forces uh, ketogenesis, uh, fr uh, frees up fatty acids to utilize as energy. Um, in addition, there's also an increased demand for, uh, for uh, phosph phosphate intermediates of glycolysis, such as ADP and ATP. Uh, so this, this state is a setup, this chronic starved state is a setup for refeeding syndrome. So once you reintroduce nu um, um, nutrition, um, what happens is there's an insulin surge which results in severe metabolic abnormalities, most, um, most notably and most, uh, most uh, severe would be things like hypophosphatemia, hypokalemia, and hypomagnesemia. So really keeping in mind that, you know, just because you start feeding them, uh, everything's going to be fine. You should also um, take, take heed into watching what, what you're doing and watching them when you start refeeding them to address the uh, malnutrition. So how do you proper manage uh, the uh, starved starve nutritional state of these patients? Well, what I've been showing you also is, is data and information on the acutely ill. There, like I said, there's not much out there with respect to this population. So what I've gathered are the recommendations from a couple sources, the American Society for um, Enteral and Parenteral Nutrition and the European Society of Enteral and Parenteral Nutrition. So usually um, it's advised to give nutrition early. Uh, and, and as mentioned, this favorably modulates the immune response by allowing the liver to, to create those uh, acute phase reactants and immunoglobulins. It also uh, preserves gut integrity. 
um, supports wound healing in those that uh, in those with our, with with chronic wounds. Um, some of the drawbacks, however, are if you start it early, you also run the risk of not be them being able to tolerate it. Um, if they can't tolerate it, then uh, they they run the risk of aspirating and uh, and 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 vomiting, um, which could cause, cause more problems. Uh, other drawbacks are um, potentially underfeeding them if they do not tolerate. So things to keep in mind here. Uh, current nutritional recommendations um, include giving them 25 kilocalories uh, per kilogram a day. Um, this is, can be divided into uh, starting them low on protein and increasing gradually to those who need it. And as, you know, these would be people who have chronic wounds or, or, or burn patients. Um, giving them, giving them uh, up to two grams per kilogram of uh, carbohydrate or glucose. There aren't any set recommendations with respect to lipids, but some sources say 30 to 50 percent of their calories should be lipids. Um, and then the recommendations do allow for un permissive underfeeding within the first two days. Uh, this is per the Aspen and Eastman recommendations. Um, they also make a note that specialty feeding, such as low protein feeding for renal patients or low carbohydrate feeding for um, for ventilated patients is not necessarily recommended. So one of the newer things nowadays in uh, treating critically ill patients is uh, exercise, you know, getting them out of bed early, actually walking them early. Uh, so again, the data I'm going to be showing you, the information I'm showing you is not necessarily treating the chronically critically ill, but rather treating the, um, the acutely ill, extrapolated into the chronically critically ill. So, it's a new idea, but it's been around for a while. Uh, this is a cardiac walker, uh, which was, um, which was uh, published. The pictures have been published in chest from over 30 years ago. Um, they used to use this uh, as a means of uh, exercising uh, patients who have uh, had problems, uh, cardiac issues, um, hospitalized patients. So, um, so the idea, like I said, been around a while, but just being uh, revisited now. Um, so why do we exercise them? Well, as mentioned, you know, there's a lot of issues with respect to them being deconditioned, loss of muscle mass. Most of the time, it's in the form of loss of strength. Um, muscle mass can, be, uh, can deteriorate as much as 1.5 kilograms of skeletal muscle a day. Uh, in some studies, it's been shown that they lose up to 50% of their muscle mass in, in uh, two weeks. Um, and neuromuscular dysfunction, not just in strength, but in, um, in, with respect to balance and mobility, um, can be seen in nearly 50% of ICU patients. And this is most, and the highest risk goes in, is attributed to these conditions in patients with these conditions. So this is a good study uh, recently published in JAMA that um, demonstrates just how much muscle is lost over time. Um, so what they did, they took 63 patients, uh, followed them longitudinally over the course of 10 days. They did muscle biopsies. They also used ultrasound to uh, to quantify uh, muscle quality and muscle loss. And what they found was that over the course of 10 days, those with single organ failure, yeah, they lost some muscle mass, maybe 8% uh, when using ultrasound to assess. And, but the patients with multi-organ failure actually lost upwards of 20% of their muscle mass, and this is only in 10 days. When you looked at patients with um, differing degrees of organ failure. Again, single organ failure probably lost about 8% of their muscle mass. Um, and going, going forward with two and three organ failure and four to six organ failure, you see that there is a collinear relationship here with the degree of muscle mass um, coinciding with the uh, number of organ failures. 
sicker you are, the more muscle you lose. As mentioned, they did muscle biopsies as well. So this is one uh, representative biopsy of a patient on day one. Um, see how the muscle is very well um, demarcated, the striated muscle, it's very, it's very heterogeneous. But when you look at day seven, um, same patient, uh, you see more homogeneous pattern, uh, loss of that uh, good uh, striated architecture. So, and this is over, only over the course of seven days in, in a patient in the ICU. So a lot of damage here um, in a short amount of time. So what are we doing to combat this? Uh, lots of places, um, from across the town in Hopkins over to uh, um, Wake Forest and over in Utah, lots of places have mo early mobility programs nowadays. Um, basically, their rehab is focused on um, at first range of motion, sitting them up, and then with the ultimate goal of walking them, whether it be on the vent, off the vent, on ECMO, off ECMO, um, so lots of places are doing this, mobility-based rehab. Um, there are potential drawbacks with this, however. Um, of course, uh, there's the potential of falling. Um, there's also the issues with many lines and tubes that need to be supervised and attended to. Typically, one person per each line or tube. Um, and you know, you also need a spotter for the patient themselves. So you can see here, this is a picture from our MICU here in 6 Weinberg. Uh, sorry, 7 Weinberg. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, you see, there's a patient, we're walking him, there's, there's a spotter here, there's uh, someone watching the lines on the tube, there's someone behind here watching the, uh, more of the lines, and so there, it's a, just a big production here um, in doing this. Um, um, me, so it is labor intensive. So is it worth it? What are the benefits of doing this if it costs so much with respect to resources? Um, this study from Bill Schweiker at Penn it demonstrates that there is some benefit. Uh, he took a, a group of over 100 patients, randomized them to either getting a mobility-based intervention uh, compared to uh, a usual care control group, and showed that um, there was greater functional, uh, higher functional status at discharge. There was less delirium at, um, at discharge from ICU, um, and there was less, the, the patients who got the intervention had less, had more ventilator-free days. Uh, so remain functional, remain sane, and off the vent quicker. This is uh, other data from Peter Morris at Wake Forest. Again, randomizing a larger cohort, um, one group to usual care, another group to, uh, again, a mobility-based um, um, rehab program. And what he found was that um, days to, to getting out of bed was obviously quicker in the mobility program. Ventilator days um, was obviously less in the mobility program. And s same with hospital length of stay and ICU length of stay, less in the mobility-based uh, rehab program. Um, one, also, one little caveat here is that cost per patient was also less, although not significantly, le significantly less, in the group that had mobility-based rehab. Um, and I want to thank Matt Barrett for throwing this together, one of our pulmonary critical care fellows. Um, what he did was he looked at four of the major ICU-based uh, rehab studies. He, he wanted to test, he wanted to see if whether or not it was safe, basically. So he took these four studies, he added up all the patients, found that there were 300 94 patients, of which received 2,716 uh, ICU uh, rehab encounters, and it was noted that only 10 patients had an ad or 10 encounters um, had an adverse outcome, which are defined as a fall, a desaturation, or a dislodged feeding or rectal tube. So, so this is less than one percent. Actually, it's 0.3 percent of of all encounters actually had a bad outcome. So, very safe. So now focusing on back on what. 
I initially started to talk about the post-ICU population. So I, I showed you that mobility-based rehab is a big thing in the ICU population. It, show it results in better outcomes. Um, it's in vogue. It's nice. It looks great. Um, but now what about, what about our population, the post-ICU population, the ICU survivors? Um, what we've been trying to do, and other, and other centers in the, across the country have been doing similar things, not quite the same, but we've been trying to incorporate a strength and endurance-based program rather than doing mobility-based program. Because as you can imagine, a lot of these patients, they can't walk. Okay. So, but when they do walk, you know, we actually do try to get them on treadmills, and we try to put them on these machines, uh, the um, arm ergometry, uh, ergometry machines. These are pictures from the, uh, the um, old university specialty hospital where we had our program up and running. Uh, and now we're at Midtown on the sixth floor um, and making strides towards what we had at, at USH. Um, our program is actually based on um, the patient. It's individualized. So depending upon the patient's mobility status, if they're bed-dependent, chair-dependent, or ambulatory, uh, we tailor their exercise regimen uh, to what they can do. And we address these physical therapy principles of muscle strengthening, muscle endurance, and aerobic fitness. And we've had some good results. So um, our program actually results in increases in strength, as you can see by hand grip here. This is our group. It's a small pilot program, pilot study, but we had greater increases in strength with respect to hand grip com compared to the control group. Um, we were able to measure um, musculoskeletal joint, uh, joint strength. You can see there's a greater change in quad strength when you look at our uh, multimodal rehabilitation group compared to the control group. We looked at hip extension strength. Again, we demonstrated greater gains uh, compared to the control group. And when you look at tricep strength, we actually demonstrated greater gains to the, compared to the control group who actually lost strength. Now, as I mentioned, some of these patients can't walk. But those that do walk, we walk them. You know, we, we actually do uh, assessments of gait speed, um, endurance, um, distance walking, as best we can, obviously, on the ventilator. So um, when, when piloting this program, we found that um, it actually resulted in a modest improvement in gait speed, um, and gait speed is a marker of, uh, as a prognostic marker um, with respect to rehospitalization compared to a control group, so 0.26 compared to 0.19. And we, we did six-minute walks on them. So our, 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 our strength and endurance-based program um, resulted in improvements in six-minute walk by 249 feet compared to 100, 153 in the control group. So we're making strides. Um, it's all about quality of life, and you really can't have a good quality of life unless you can be independent. So we also measure, measured ADLs. So um, our program, when you look at patients who, um, who came in um, being somewhat dependent with respect to sit to stand, um, the control group upon discharge, 28% of them were still dependent um, in performing the sit to stand maneuver um, when compared to our rehab group with only 8% of them being somewhat dependent um, when they were discharged. And how about dressing yourself, okay? You can't, you can't be independent without dressing yourself. Um, the group that did not get our rehab program uh, had a 43% dependency uh, compared to only 8% of those that did get our program upon discharge. So um, again, great, great differences here uh, with a simple uh, endurance and strengthening based program, rehab, rehab program. And uh, so as a pulmonologist, one of the things I want to do is wean people from the vent. 
Um, although there wasn't, there was only a modest difference with respect to our rehab program in getting them, in, with respect to vent days, you can see that we had great success compared to control in actually weaning them from the ventilator. Less time requiring mechanical ventilation and more weaned. And this is what Medicare is all about, um, getting them home, not having them readmitted. Um, so in the group that got rehab, 50% actually went home compared to none that, that got the control or got control treatment. And, and actually, 50% ended up going to a skilled nursing facility, which in my mind is not necessarily a good outcome, but um, it, it is here what it is. So 50% home, nobody home in the control group. So, so in conclusion, talking about this population, um, they're very medically complex, uh, and they require ongoing nursing and medical support. Uh, the weeding strategies, which I've went over, um, all incorporated uh, for the best results, rapid shallow breathing index, whether you follow that uh, at spot or uh, follow the trends of such, um, and they also all entailed spontaneous breathing, in, uh, spontaneous breathing trials, uh, which seem to be, at least at this point, one of the best ways to wean this population. Nutritional management uh, should stress not, not just underfeeding, but also overfeed, overfeeding um, and ensuring proper protein intake, especially for those who are in need with, with wounds and um, um, from healing, healing issues. And as I went over um, some of our results, uh, strength and endurance-based rehabilitation um, has shown to ha uh, ha we have shown that has resulted in um, in some good outcomes, and this is in contrast to what's currently being employed in acute level ICUs, uh, which is mobility-based programs. Uh, so, with that, I'd be happy to answer any questions. I thank you for your attention. So thanks, Havelino. I think uh, let me just touch on a couple things. Um, First, I think the importance of this topic can't be overstressed. I mean, this, you know, we're so good at fixing people in the short term, and, and that's kind of the sexy part of critical care. But in reality, um, the efforts that we do in, in uh, getting these people sort of rehumanized, as I like to say, you know, moving around, eating, you know, interacting um, is really the the key to I think why we entered into this field is to get people home, healthy, you know, help home and happy with their family, and and it's a it's an element of care in the ICU that we really cannot neglect, um, and and we should be appropriately planning for. The way I think about it is, if I'm a, you know if I'm a really good cook. I, my, I can make the most incredible dinner in the world, but if I left the dishes everywhere in, in a big mess, my wife would still be pretty pissed off. So that's the way I think if I do a really good job in saving that patient and getting them all teed up and, and looking good, uh, if I don't you know, do what, you know, kind of finish the job, it still kind of leaves a bad taste in the mouth, I think. Um, and, and overall, um, yeah, I think that that key is what I stress that rehumanization is is really important. Um, try to mimic that individual's uh, uh, life at home while they're in the unit once they're stable. So, um, any yeah, Ginny.
Oh, sure, yeah. So that, the question was, uh, what is known regarding the mental health of these patients, uh, the patients who have survived like, long ICU stays or even acutely in the ICU? Or well, both. both. So, Sure. So that's you know that's all a it's all a, it's all a result of you know their their time in the ICU. That's delirium, anxiety. That's PTSD. That's depression so, to some effect. They, you know it's all a result of that of that 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 prolonged ICU stay. It's staring at the same four walls. It's having lack of social interaction, lack of time awareness. You know it's it's being cooped up in um, you know being cooped up in the cellar or in solitary confinement. It's just like that. I mean, and with that, you're going to develop these psychological uh, psychological issues. Um, yeah, you could try. You know, obviously, we we've been all doing. We've all been doing uh, antipsychotics like haloperidol, Seroquel. That that that's been shown to help. Um, other things are um, reacclimatizing them to proper uh, social and environmental um, situations. So you know, opening the windows, uh, allowing them to sleep better at night. Um, you know. Um, having their family come in and talk to them frequently, um, you know, those sort of things. That, that all helps. Um, uh, I know you're talking about the sneak and wean sort of thing in the patients that are very anxious. Um, um, you could do that, but it's, uh, in the long run, it's better to, you know, to make sure the patient's aware of what's going on he, and the patient uh, is uh, partaking in his treatment. So uh, across, across the town at uh, Hopkins, you know, they're actually incorporating um, ICU diaries so you know, someone would go in the room and help the patient once they're awake and alert, um, fill out their own diary and about what goes on over the course of their stay. And when they're not awake and alert, someone would fill it out for them. So they would hopefully maybe, when they're out of the ICU, read back and remember or try to remember what happened, uh, rather than just having a big blank, um, big blank, uh, empty black hole. So you know, th th those are some of the things that they're, we're trying to to incorporate into into treating these patients. You know. John. Could you just talk briefly about your opinions on trach collar treatments, whether you know, should you just let them ride? Should it be once a day, twice a day? Should you progress that period of time? Or is it individualized per patient? Yeah, so that's that's a great question. The question is uh, how to manage trach collar trials, uh, whether it should be standardized protocol or it should be individualized per patient. So my answer to that is both. Um, I mean, so when they're in the ICU, whether it be, you know, surgical, neuro, medical, trauma, you know, you just let them ride. You're in the best situation you could possibly be in uh, with respect to monitoring, okay? Um, now, the study I showed you was in a long-term acute care facility, so she let them ride anyway. That was the first study of its kind in this population. So she, she protocolized um, trait collar trials up to 12 hours. So she did a 12-hour trial, regardless of what they, how they did or, or, or how they felt, put them on the vent to rest. Um, they could have went 24 hours, but she rested them. Then she did another, 20, another 12 hours the next day. And at that day, this, at day number two, if they flew, they flew. So it was protocolized and it, was, you know, it, it demonstrated good outcomes. Um, so you know, in the ICU, I let them ride. Uh, in, a, in, a, in a more less acute or a subacute chronic setting, you should be more protocolized because there, you know, bad things can happen in these less monitored settings. Yeah. So what, what's the length of time and the amount of support that you use in general uh, for the SBT? Because again, ultimately it comes down to a certain, it changes according to the patient to a certain extent. Not just the location, I feel like it, a lot depends on, you know, what your acceptable 
you know, sensitivity specificity, you know, um, is for each uh, patient. You know, are they a tough airway? You know, if you need to reintubate, the easy airway is it? You know, et cetera. So, what do you do? Uh, I'm a fa I'm in favor of a, of a shorter SBT. Um, you know, I'm not quite a 30 minute person, but I definitely am not a two hour person. I'm, I fall into the realm of maybe 45 to 60 minutes. With that, obviously a low number, you know, 40, 50, 60 would be very good. Uh, and a very high number, 180, 200, very bad. Um, what I tend to do is watch them if it's marginal. Say, if the, if, the, if the rapid shallow breathing index is in the 90s, I watch that over the course of a 45 or a minute or a 60 minute SBT, and if that goes up, you know, uh, I follow the trend. They, that patient, I would think twice about extubating them. Okay, so so again, it's like all of critical care. It's following trends. You know, it's following numbers and trends. So you you know, watching how they do over time. It's like again, it's not necessarily a stark number, but you know, seeing how they do. The amount of support. Uh, amount of support. So um, I tend to look at a couple things. I tend to look at the patient's body habitus, whether or not they're you know six foot four, two hundred and ninety pounds, uh, and I also look at the ET tube. So, and this is something that, some, oh, something I brought up earlier. Um, uh, so with a smaller ET tube, I tend to use a little bit of pressure support and a little bit of PEEP. So pressure support eight, maybe PEEP of five um, in a small, with a smaller ET tube. Um, and those with a trach or a larger ET tube, I probably would just go CPAP of five. Again, and the whole concept is just overcoming tube resistance. So it's all, it's all, it's all um, it's all patient and ET tube dependent. Question. This wasn't said, but I think it's, it's implied. Um, when you put them on your your human parameter, do you also coordinate um, sedation off previous? That it, yes. The question is, um, when you wean them, what do you do about sedation? It and. Uh, and it, it is it, it is implied. Yes, sedation is uh, typically you know. Shut off. Uh, we give them sedation vacations in the, in all ICUs. Um, in the post-acute venue, in the in the in our chronically critically ill, so to say, venue, these patients are rarely sedated. Uh, you know, we're talking about not an ICU, so you don't you don't have drips present. You don't you have at best intermittent boluses of benzodiazepine at best. So, but um, but yes, the sedation is off. Carl. Mm -hmm. Yep. No. Doctor Shanholtz's comment was, uh, he advocates for pre uh, for a SBT to be performed on a, a zero, yeah. zip, zero peep, and zero, zero peep and zero pressure support. So with that, he's implying that there should be another trial performed testing um, um, different levels of pressure support and peep uh, on with SBTs. So, and uh, one of the fellows will pick up that study for you, Carl. I think, it, again, it goes back to, you know, individualizing it to the patient. You know, for those for whom you're particularly concerned or have that underlying physiology that may, you know, decompensate particularly dramatically after, you know, removing that PEEP or that pressure support, I th yeah, I think you definitely got to factor that in. I mean, Carl, you know better than I do even about if, all this. Even if it's the last two minutes before I pulled it, even if it's, you know, yeah, yeah. Legitimate. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. Thank Thanks, you. Evan.